This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories, each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50, where I hope I bring you some very interesting voices, experts in the world of health now, healthy aging. Maybe some are out of the box. My guest today is John McLernan, and he is an out-of-the-box coach. I wouldn't necessarily have a guy coach on for health and fitness and weight loss, but when I met him virtually, he sent me this email and it was so like, I want to say heart centered without making it sound soft and woo, but he really got what I have always felt is uh, a woman's approach to her body and her weight loss and this and that. So John, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I, I sometimes feel like I don't fit into the typical male paradigm. And part of it will relate to maybe some of the experience we'll end up unpacking today. But yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I think we will. I'd like to give our listeners a little bit of background because you certainly have an interesting and various <laughs> background. So right now you're a weight loss coach. I am, yeah. Functional eating expert. And you personally have lost 100 pounds, which I have. 100 pounds is like more than pounds. once. <laughs> Right. I've probably lost 100 pounds when I, if you think of it in 10s and 20s over my lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. So you were a nanotechnology researcher. I don't even know what that is. Give us a brief what is uh, So that was at University of Victoria. So I was a chemistry student and we were researching what we call blue light emitting particles. And so we were trying to, it was pre-Blu-ray. So we were actually one of the research groups trying to develop because, because like laser is essentially you, you shoot energy at a particle and it shoots that energy back at you in the form of colored light. And uh, so we wanted to get blue light. And so basically every morning I'd bake a batch of nanoparticles. And uh, then, then we put it in this big million dollar machine and shoot lasers and things at it and see if we'd get it to give us blue light back. So it was, uh, it was quite an interesting project. But I call scientific research success through failure. And at 21 years old, I was getting set to go into a PhD program and then decided in my impetuous um, youth that I didn't want to spend four more years working for a pittance for somebody else to take credit for the work and just to get some letters after my name that I felt at that time, uh, not very many people would value. And so I ended up popping into the Navy instead. Okay. So that then that takes us to a Navy Marine engineer, a yeah. globetrotting nomad. Uh, yeah. John says he spent most of his life running from his true calling until one question changed his life. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the question was, John. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I can set the frame a little bit. Um, so it turns out that I'm actually quite an empath. As a kid, I had a lot of temper tantrums. And looking back now, what I realized that was is I had all these big emotions and I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't know what it meant or how to express them. And so then I learned how to kind of suppress them and hide them um, as much as possible. I actually used to get into a lot of fights as a kid and then I'd feel awful afterwards. I'd go home and cry after going to a fight with a kid. Um, so, but I, I learned to hide it because um, 
back then it would be, you know, if you showed kind of weakness or emotion as a guy, you were seen as, as weak. And so I gradually started to suppress this stuff and even found myself turning in kind of a more of a, almost hyper masculine. So, you know, I joined the Navy, I got into powerlifting, um, raced motorcycles, uh, all, all kinds of stuff that we, we could call like really sort of hyper masculine type behavior. After going through some trauma, um, about 10 years ago, it was actually August, August 15th, 2011 that it happened. I didn't really, again, I wasn't equipped to deal with all of the emotional fallout of that. And I gained a lot of weight, uh, quite a bit of weight, in fact. Um, so ultimately, I tried a lot of things to lose the weight, but all of it was a type of avoidance behavior. So I got into nutrition science, got into supplement science, um, into powerlifting, so many things other than dealing with what was really going on. Mm. And so it was, I, I was almost ready to give them coaching because people could, didn't seem to get me. And I was, I was getting so frustrated and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I said, how could I, how could I know everything I know, be able to help other people successfully? And I can't seem to help myself. And so kind of a, a last ditch thing, I hired a coach. Um, he was at the time about 42 and, and pretty muscular. And I thought I was hiring him because I wanted to have a physique similar to his because I thought that was where happiness lie. And he treated me very differently than I expected. So because I had a really disordered relationship with myself, I was really quite, I would say, abusive to myself in the way I talked to myself, um, really in the, in the cruelty of my own thoughts. And he showed me patience and compassion and kindness and let me struggle. And it was really, it felt very foreign for me in a sense, because I wasn't used to being treated like this and I was expecting, and I used to be involved in the supplement industry and the body, the world of bodybuilding and whatnot. And there's a lot of body dysmorphia and orthorexia and things. And so it really took me back. I was like, why aren't you, why aren't you like telling me what a loser I am for my struggles? <laughs> you know, why aren't, why aren't you telling me, you know, because these are the things that were, were said in my head. And so one day he said, Hey John, I want to ask you a question. So if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I have to go before I find your name? Mm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks <laughs> because in that moment I realized I'm, I'm not even on the list. And now I think about it, I'm like, how, how could I have been kind of like so far gone? You know, I grew up in a loving home. My, my parents have been married for 43 years, I think, going on. Like, they've got a wonderful marriage, you know, very stable, secure home. Like, how did I, how did I get to this place? I didn't even know. But it started, it started me reflecting on this. Well, what, is, what does it mean to even, like, love myself? Am I allowed to love myself? How do I get on the list, let alone anywhere near the top of the list? <laughs> and so it wasn't really an over, you know, it'd be lovely if it was just like this overnight epiphany and everything changed. But that sparked the change where I started to reflect on, well, what does this actually mean? And what happens if people actually find out that I'm an empath with a big heart and I really care about people and I have emotions and I have feelings, uh, you know? it turns out they won't reject me. <laughs> they won't see me as less than, you know, in, in terms of, of being a man, you know, I'm, st I'm six, one, uh, two fifty. Like I'm, I'm a pretty big dude. And so, but I didn't get treated the, again. I didn't get treated the way I, I thought I would when people started to see who I genuinely am. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So we have a, a gap in our ages and I would have to say that, you know, with age comes wisdom. Lucky you <laughs> that question asked when you did, because now you have a lifetime of making it so, not just for you, but yeah. for the people that you coach. And now you're on a mission to help other people lose weight and not use BS diets, as you said. Use <laughs> those BS diets in the rearview mirror. I amen to that. I mean, it's funny. I was with um, two of my high school girlfriends yesterday visiting. And, you know, we were talking about this and that high school and because we were at the beach. We were talking about, remember how we, we had so many hours at the beach? And, but, <laughs> 
the hours of the beach were preceded by the banana and skim milk diet or the drinking right. diet or the, I don't even, grapefruit, like so many in between the weekends where we could be at the beach, all we did was eat disorderedly, crazily, most yeah. of us. And looking back at the photos, we were not heavy. No. And, you know, we had Glamour Magazine and Vogue Magazine and all these magazines with those skinny little models as the thing that we wanted to, to be like, the people we wanted to be like. It's crazy because there, there's a promise in there um, and it's a false promise, but it is if you look like this, you'll be happy. Yeah. And, and I bought into that too. That guy, if you had a physique like that guy, that's where happiness would be. Yeah. That, that's why I hired him originally. <laughs> it's because, you know, I, and I've never, I still haven't managed to. Now, he, he's a bit shorter and stockier and, and probably has like a good frame for what we'd call like a bodybuilding type physique. If you're about five, nine, that's a really good height for bodybuilding because you, you usually get, you get pretty good proportions. But to be like, I have big long limbs as well. Like I was a volleyball and basketball player. I'm, I'm like a, a monkey or yeah. <laughs> and uh, so to, to put that level, not that this, I don't want to digress too much, but really to build that kind of muscle, to have that sort of physique would be really, really challenging just because of the length and size of my frame, the, the volume of muscle requires. So mm-hmm. I just say that to say, I never, I never did actually achieve that physique, but I did achieve happiness and loving myself. Well, that's the most important thing, which is now why you can help other people. I want to talk about something you said to me in the first email and you were talking about that, you know, the food is never the issue and changing. So let's just say somebody's Netflix binging and every night they're having ice cream or every night. And then, you know, COVID's over. We all have 15 pounds to lose. Some people have 15 pounds to lose. And so we take away those things. And as you say, (laughs) Wrapping broccoli in a lettuce leaf and eating it is never going to make anybody happy or something like that. So We can't replace this delicious thing for something that nobody really wants to eat in the way that they are told to eat it and eat less and exercise more. So what is the, how do we go from over here to healthy, balanced eating? That's going to be an individual challenge for each person. And so I, I take what I call like a nutrition progression approach with somebody. The, the normal, and maybe we could preface it by framing the normal um, diet approach that still exists, you, you know, and part of me would think like in the 21st century with all of the information that we have, that this sort of thing would start to fade away. And it is, thankfully. But the, the original diet approach is we're going to put this template over you. We're going to put a whole bunch of rules on you that you're going to start following from day one. Well, that's a huge amount of change that's really, really difficult for our brain, which is essentially a habit-forming computer, among other things. To, to try and implement all of those changes all at once. It's a rest, it's a guaranteed recipe to fail. And so we want to take an opposite approach to that. And so I'm, I'm interested, not just in what you eat, I'm interested in how you eat, why you eat, when you eat and who you eat with. So really getting a complete picture of what your eating looks like. And before we start worrying about the minutiae of like, you know, should I eat this many, you know, grams of protein or something like that? It's let's get an insight into what your eating looks like right now. And start bringing that into your conscious awareness. And so one of the very first things I have people do is take photos of their meals. And it sounds like a really, really simple, like, oh, that's so simple. I'm like, yes, it's supposed to be. I want it to be so simple you can't not do it. But what it does is it brings our eating behaviors into our conscious awareness. And and really that's at the heart of like, I like to call what I do brain-driven weight loss. When we take a photo of our meal, that triggers our conscious awareness. There's also the flip side of that, the times we don't want to take a photo of what's in front of us. And then... I say, well, we want to ask the question that place, like, where's the judgment coming from? Because it won't be coming from me. But I will ask questions about it sometimes, and I'll just ask it in relation to your goals. Does that support your goals? 
And, and so instead of diving into a whole bunch of rules right away, we say, let's, let's start creating awareness around our behaviors because really that's the precursor to change. What kind of goal setting? I think you're not particularly a traditional goal kind of guy, coach, are you? Not really. So I kind of ask, I want to get two things from people. I want to know in the short term what it is they'd like to accomplish because that does matter. There's there's a tendency to, uh, I think, sometimes put a lot of emphasis on the big, big picture, long-term goals. And that can be a good thing. But the, the, the pitfall there is that it's easy to push that into the future. You know what? Like, that's a big goal. That's a 10-year goal. That's 10 years away. I got to take care of today. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, and that's a very typical stress response. And so I kind of want to know four weeks from now, what is a change you'd like to see? You know, something that's, and then, and then we'd say, is, is that realistic? So when someone said, I'd like to lose 15 pounds in four weeks, and I said, well, let's have a chat about the, re- the realistic nature of that. And, and, and we'll explore that. Why do you want to lose 15 pounds in four weeks? You know, what, what would be so bad if it happened over eight weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks, really? So we want to have something a little bit short term with a little, little bit of urgency there. We do, we do good with a little bit of prompting. And then the big picture goal does give meaning to our actions. So the day-to-day habits are often not very glamorous and by themselves would just seem like trivial and trite and boring. But when we do have that big picture goal, that does help to put meaning to, to what, what it is that we're doing. So I'm not just eating vegetables because I'm fat and depressed. I'm, I'm eating vegetables because I want to be able to get down on the floor and play with my grandkids. I just had a conversation um, yesterday with someone who said, I don't want to, I don't want to have to say to my grandkids, I've got three and a fourth one on the way. Well, if granny gets down on the floor, she can't get up again. And it's like, there you go. That's what this is really about. It's not even about a number on the scale, right? It's, it's about the, the life that we want to live and the ability that we want to possess and maintain as we move into our, our advanced years. Yeah. And I would say that although we're geared to the number on the scale, right? Or for women, yep. maybe it's a pants size or a dress size. And these numbers, as we get older, I would say have got to lose their meaning or their hold on us because most women that I know don't weigh themselves. They're not obsessed with the scale anymore. But again, so it's like, okay, so the number on the scale could be 150. I want it to be 130. Therefore, I want to lose 20 pounds. But what you said, which I often work with people the same way, how do you want to feel? Why is this number important? You know, nobody's going to put you on, on a shame thing if you don't get down to a size 8 or 10 or 12 or 14, whatever. Yeah. So it's coming from inside, right? It's that need is, yeah. from inside that we're used to belittling yeah. ourselves, isn't it? And the other piece of that is that I find as we age, 10 pounds in four weeks, the body has a mind of its own. That timeline is predicted by all the other things that create hormonal responses in the body, stress, yeah. Not sleeping well. Maybe it's perimenopausal symptoms, right? So again, I, I like you try to get people out of the time frame goal as much as the how do I want to feel? What is the reason for the goal? And tap into the more meaningful aspect of why why we're having conversation. Right? Yeah. Why a coach to begin with. Yeah. And I will say like there is a degree of value to something tangible. Because human beings can be encouraged by it. But I like to say that weight loss is a doorway. It's not a destination. Mm. And interestingly, I think this is why I often, in my own observations, see something like self-sabotage come up. Because you get, let's say you get to your your goal weight. And the day you see that number on the scale is a really exciting day. Yes, I'm finally here. I've arrived. But that's not really your destination. And the next day you're like, okay, now what? (laughs) Now what? And 
so we actually encounter ultimately what's kind of like an identity crisis. So now that you've got here, if you want to stay here, you actually have to continue to live this new lifestyle that you've been trying to form and build. But many people, it was like, no, I just had to deprive myself until I got here so I could go back to living my old lifestyle and, and being that old person. So there's almost like this identity crisis or at, at a different level in our brain that stops us. And speaking from personal experience, I was like, I just have to suffer through this until I get to this weight and then I can finally live my life again. Right. Yeah. And what, what a fallacy that is. Exactly. And, you know, it's almost in the world of coaching, as you know, people wait until such and such happens before they can be happy, rich, free, whatever, right? There's always an event or a transformation, oftentimes outside of ourselves, that has to happen. And the same with the weight loss. Okay, so I got here. Now what? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. I'm curious what it is that prompts us to project kind of our happiness into the future. And I wonder if, you know, and maybe this is speaking from my own experience again, there was this fear that if I was allowed to be happy in the present moment, that, that somehow I would stop caring about like being healthy and weight loss because now I was happy. And, and it's, it's probably what we call a cognitive distortion because it is possible to be happy and want to grow and improve. There's actually, a, we have a really, what would I say? We have a really strong, like desire or drive within us, maybe the soul of our being at the heart of our being as human beings to want to grow. And when we're happy, it's a lot easier to grow when we're unhappy. That's what actually keeps us stuck in these old patterns that, that really don't serve us. Yes. Many times I've heard a coach say to somebody at, at a mic, at an event, so what do you really want? You're, you're at this event. It's about making money or being healthy or whatever it is. So what do you really want? And I'm telling you, 80% of the time that I've asked people that, or I see they don't know exactly what they want. So it becomes a weight loss goal or a money goal. And those are great. I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah, absolutely kinds of goals, tangible, but the intangible things are harder to identify for us, especially when we're used to like, everything's okay. Well, what if everything could be amazing? Not every day, not every minute, but I think yeah. we, we settle for okay when we really want more, but we don't want to ask for it or we don't know how to ask for it. And I wonder if we're afraid to ask for it because we're afraid that we might not get there. Yeah. You know, the, that I asked that question too, and, and that's probably the hardest question for a human being to answer. What do I really want? Because the other part of it is we're now committing to something. This is what I actually want. And that's to the exclusion of, of other things. Mm-hmm. And especially now in like the 21st century, like FOMO is a very real thing, fear of missing out. Yeah. Because we're presented with so many options and so many potential paths and ideas. And maybe we're also sort of told this, you can be whatever you want to be and, and so on. And it's nice to have aspirational messaging, but there there is a limit to it and it does need to be grounded in reality. And so, but on the flip side, so maybe I can use my own marriage as an analogy. I believe that like I married my wife for life. I'm, I'm with her till, till death do us part. Um, call me old fashioned, but I, I'm in this for life for good, for bad, you know, whatever. We're, we're together and we have, I'm, I'm blessed. I have a really, really good marriage. I can't, I can't complain one bit. I've got an amazing wife, but that's to the exclusion of all other options. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of, when I made that commitment, I was like, that's it. This is, but now what I've done is I've committed to going deeper. You know, I thought when I married my wife, like, wow, I don't know if I'll ever love her more than this day. But you add 15, 15 years to that 15 years of day in and day out investing in this relationship and it's just more and more and more valuable. So there's something to be said for for committing to something to the exclusion of all others. And now explain it's, it's 
like it's such a meaningful relationship in my life. And I say, I bet something's worth more than all the money in the world could ever buy because it's, I've invested 15, 16 years of my life actually in this relationship. And you're a new dad. Congratulations. I am. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Since most of the people listening are going to be women, I have got to share what John told me when I was having a little pre-call with him about having this new baby. And he said, you know, I, I can't actually experience my, what my wife is going through, but I'm seeing it firsthand here. And I always make sure that I get up with her. So she has time for self-care, that she has water, that I'm thinking, how many women would have killed for that kind of guy in their corner when they were up with the feedings and the thing? And I, I'm sure that lots of men also do that. But the way you said it, it was so loving. And it was just like, well, this is what I do. This is what I would be expected to do. And I love that. And I can really bring that back to, again, really exploring what, what self-love means. And it's like when my cup is full, it's easier to offer the best to others. Mm. And it sounds kind of cliche to say that, but, you know, I used to be in one sense kind of selfish in my, my relationship. We've always had a good relationship. We've always had really good chemistry. And I often, very often took that for granted. My wife is also very devoted, very committed. Very often I took that for granted, but as I've really grown sort of in compassion and empathy for myself, and as I learn more about compassion and empathy, working with in particular women, you know, and witnessing everything that my wife went through to grow this little human and to, to give birth and, and now just day in and day out, like it's a 24 hour a day thing. And I just see how much love she lavishes on him. And I think, well, I just want to keep nurturing that. I, I want her, the, the, the worst thing in the world for me would be for her to feel alone in this experience or not supported in this. And, Part of it is driven by also wanting my, my, my young son to, to feel loved. And they say, you can't overlove a kid, but I said, we're going to try, <laughs> you know, because I've spent so much time now studying behavioral psychology and learning about the importance, especially these early, early um, developmental months and years in, in their life. And so I realized that, well, I can't nurse my kid and I still can't quite provide the same degree of comfort that mom can. I just don't have that bond and that's okay. Um, she, she deserves that for all that she's done to, to bring him into the world. But if, if she is nurtured and cared for, that means that she has more to nurture and give in to my son as well. And so it becomes kind of this virtuous, virtuous cycle. I love it. Let's talk about intuitive eating versus your version, informed eating. Yeah, I, I think the idea of intuitive eating is really appealing. Like, I understand it's draw, but... And, and this is a simplification, but at its core, most people are going to interpret it as eat what feels good or eat what I feel like. Now, if you dive into, into like the, could we say the science of intuitive eating, it goes deeper than that. But most people aren't going to go deeper than that mm -hmm. because it's such an appealing idea. Eat what I feel like. The problem is our modern like food products that we're um, sort of marketed to every single day are actually deliberately engineered to bypass our ability to eat intuitively these things. When I was studying chemistry, one of the things, one of my courses was in industrial chemistry and getting into food chemistry. These foods are engineered like from like every detail. So we would never imagine the level of detail that goes into from the time it touches your lips, from the time it touches the front of your teeth, the tip of your tongue, the middle of your tongue, the back of your tongue. Mm -hmm. They think about every single detail about that whole eating experience. And they deliberately engineer these foods to really bypass our fullness and satiety mechanisms. Because from a business standpoint, the more you eat, the more they sell and the more profitable they are. It's not really that nefarious in a sense. It's a, it's a business thing. And so I would love it if we could eat intuitively in the modern world. 
But then we factor in, you know, the high stress like lifestyle. We live in a biologically stressful 21st century life. Social media, um, just electronic, digital, like the digital lifestyle is biologically stressful. That also makes it more difficult to intuitively eat. And so I think sometimes there's also this, this sense of that, that would be the ideal. It's how we should all be able to eat. And somehow if I'm not eating in this way, I'm failing. Yeah. And it's like, don't put that pressure on yourself. Like these, these food companies have invested literally billions of dollars in food science, like in flavoring science, in, in like textural science and in psychology to hijack your brain. That's what they're trying to do. It's not really nefarious. They just want to sell more stuff and make more money. Right. So now if we understand that this is what we're up against, we can, we can eat in a different way. And so there's, there's an element of needing to kind of, what I say, like accept sort of the biological reality of the, of the world that we're living in and, and make peace with it. You can't intuitively eat, you know, chips ahoy or you really can't because they're, they're you know, and I, I pick on those because I remember trying to, um, overeat these soft and chewy like mini chips ahoy cookies i thought if i could just eat and eat and eat until i make myself sick i'll never want to eat them again oh no and that lasted about two days <laughs> you know i ate like three three full boxes of these cookies and even in, crazily enough it took about three boxes to actually feel physically satisfied and full as well wow but it, it didn't work because that's what they're engineered to do like there's such um such a pleasurable eating experience that's what they are and so the idea of intuitive eating, and, and I hear this from so many of my clients, you know, like I just start and I feel like I, I can't stop. And, and there is an emotional element to this as well. But it's like, why make your life harder? Why make it more difficult? But the only things we could intuitively eat are really m what we call like whole foods. Foods mm -hmm. as, they, as they occur or as close as possible as they occur in nature. Because they're not biologically, they're, sorry, they're not chemically engineered to bypass our biological mechanisms to, to satiety and fullness and things like that. And so we could intuitively eat those. By the moment you got um, most packaged and highly processed, hyperpalatable foods, you really can't intuitively eat them. And, and that's kind of just the reality that we're confronted with. Mm -hmm. And most of the foods that you're referring to, especially things like chips and white cookies or any kind of cookie, they are carb, sugar, and salt laden, and they create the craving response, right? I, there are times when I truly do crave salmon or broccoli, yeah. all this and that, but if I were eating a lot of convenience foods, I would probably more be craving the potato chips or the Doritos yeah. or English muffins for breakfast. But And cravings are a really interesting thing because there really is no biological imperative for industrial, like seed oils, for example, um, to pick on those. There's no biological imperative for the, the highly refined carbohydrates or the highly concentrated sugars. And so the craving at that point is purely a psychological experience. Mm -hmm. It's not... Like, like the idea that, well, if you're craving chocolate, you need more magnesium. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be nice if that was true? Yeah. Because if you wanted more magnesium, you'd pick something much more magnesium rich. Maybe pick broccoli or spinach or something like that. Yeah. Nobody craves those. Well, I know you said you, maybe you crave it a little bit. Broccoli, I don't know what it is about broccoli. Well, it could, it could be just knowing how like nourishing and nutrient rich it is, like how powerful it is in the body. Like it's such a, such an amazing food. And the idea of superfoods, I'm like just about any plant food that's like, you know, a non-starchy vegetable could fall into the category of, of superfood because of how much nutrition is packed into it. So then the idea of informed eating is because again, these, these, these highly, our modern sort of 21st century packaged foods, food products really they're also engineered to be eaten without awareness. So they're meant to, you're meant to like mindlessly eat them, you know, watching Netflix and making an entire bag of chips disappear or an entire 
box of cookies or whatever. They're, they're engineered to be that. And so the way that you, you combat that or fight back against that is informed eating. And it's exactly that. It's being able to bring our eating behaviors into our conscious awareness. So bring it from kind of the, the midbrain to the, the front of our brain or our prefrontal cortex. And these are all like bits of simplifications, but I mean, it, it makes it so that somebody can understand. So we take something that is like an automated mindless behavior, and now we move it into a conscious behavior. And you might still end up eating those cookies, but now you're making a decision in relation to your goals and your health and saying, okay, I'm going to choose this trade-off. Today, I'm going to eat this food because I'd like to indulge this craving, but I accept that in eating this food, that it's, it's not helping me get any closer to my health goals. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I, I have a phrase, excess in moderation, for just the reason <laughs> that once in a while, you may want to, there was a diet, a, a meal pl- eating plan, I don't know what the heck you'd call it, a number of years ago, which was low carb, high fat protein, and you could do whatever you wanted all day Sunday because supposedly eating a bunch of carbs on Sunday was going to reset your metabolism. I mean, it was, they had it all worked out on paper, but I could just never buy it. But I thought this is a good one. Cause then on Sunday I could have pancakes or bear yeah. claws or whatever. It didn't last long. Cause I, I just, I think that it's hard on Monday, right? Now you've had all this fun. You've had all these great foods and now you wake up and you're feeling kind of sluggish or maybe a little hungover from it all. And to yeah. jump back on that wagon, which is a phrase I'm sure you hate as much as I do. Yeah. Um, I often tell people that there is no wagon. There's only, there's only life. There's life. Yeah. So, you know, I think the theory behind that was something like, you know, carbohydrate deprivation and caloric restriction, which is necessary to lose body fat. Like we can't eat an excess of calories and somehow magically lose fat. Or, you know, I hear people say, I'm not, I'm not eating enough. So I must be like, I have to eat more to lose fat. I'm like, well, that kind of defies the laws of, you know, biology. But the idea here is, okay, you starve yourself of carbohydrates, your thyroid will downregulate your basal metabolic rate in response to a lack of carbohydrates. And then if you do a carbohydrate spike, and this is very common in the bodybuilding world, carbohydrate spike, it will then boost your, your thyroid function again. And it will offset some of the metabolic adaptation that occurs in response to a caloric deficit. Because remember, we have a, we have a famine biology and we live in a feast world. So our biology is wired to adapt to food scarcity. It's why human beings are still alive. When we, we didn't have food abundance for the first, I don't know, well, up until maybe 50, 40 years ago, and, and, you know, where we had food security, for 99.99% of human history, we didn't have food security. So we have this famine biology, but we live in this feast world. We, we, I think we produce something in the na- neighborhood of like an, enough calories in North America to feed every, every human being like 4,000 calories a day. There's that much food floating around just in North America. Well, it's got to go somewhere. And so that's why it's constantly being pushed on us. It it is going somewhere. It's going to everybody's waistlines and to, you know, storing visceral fat and and so on. What was the hardest thing about the 100-pound journey? Ooh. I think the the magnitude of it. Mm. Looking at it and going, man, this is going to be a lot of work. So did you decide a hundred pounds or did you just say, I got to get some weight off of me and we'll see how it goes? I didn't, I didn't actually decide a hundred pounds necessarily. I think, I think originally I wanted to lose maybe 80 pounds or something. Cause I thought it was, that was a good number. And I thought I could do that in a year and I'm taking me about six <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I'd lose the weight and gain it back, lose the weight, gain it back. I was a classic yo-yo dieter. Yeah. And so the hardest part I really think is, is the mental game. It's, it's looking at the magnitude of the problem and because there's this inclination 
to look at the size of the problem and think the solution has to be equal in magnitude. And I call it trying to swallow the elephant whole. Mm. So 80 pounds or 100 pounds, like that's a lot of weight to lose. But if you were to break it down, so I'd ask my clients all the time, how do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite at a time. And anytime they're feeling overwhelmed, I'm like, are you trying to swallow the elephant whole? Are you trying to tackle the entirety of this problem in your head today? Mm. That's, that's why you're feeling overwhelmed. We know there's a bigger goal, but we can put that bigger goal in the shiny object store and pull it out every once in a while to remind us what we're working towards. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is craft a way of living that we can keep doing. Because that means that when we get to that goal, now we'll be able to sustain that. And so for, for me, to, to bring back to your question, for me, it was really staring at the magnitude of that and going like, how am I ever going to get there? <laughs> and, and battling through, the, it's so much a mental game because the, the biology or the physiology of fat loss is quite well understood. It's not really a secret anymore. It's very well documented. We try to reframe it in different ways to make it attractive from a marketing standpoint. And I understand that. I mean, but the reality is it's really, that process is quite simple. It's the human being that's complicated. So tell me about, tell us about your 180 lifestyle. Well, lifestyle yeah. 180, I should say. Yeah, lifestyle 180. So it's a 180 day program. Um, so the name sort of gives that away. And of course, it's a nice little metaphor for a complete change in direction. So uh-huh. if we, right, if we consider, everyone says, I need to do a 360. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you're on, Get back where you Right. So we say, let's consider the, the current path you're on and where it's going to get you to. And let's consider if we were to, to change course, because very often the, the path people are on is a path to like heart disease, to diabetes, to, to all kinds of chronic illness and disease and lack of mobility and, and so on. So um, I thought, well, how are we going to, how are we going to tackle this without, without dieting? And it's really evolved into this brain driven weight loss. And I, I kind of break it down into five core components the first one is, is optimizing your metabolism. And it's, it's, again, it's probably a little bit simpler than people would make it out to be. It's, you know, it's not about a whole bunch of caffeine or ephedrine or things like that or taxing your nervous system, but it's like, well, let's optimize your metabolism. Let's, and then we, let's optimize your digestion. And I kind of focus on those two things first and, and the sort of um, the sub behaviors that were related to that first, because if, if we're not digesting things well, you could eat all the healthy food in the world and you just create colorful poop. You're like, oh, there's peas and corn and carrots and things, you know. Then we move into optimizing, I would say, like your nu- the nutrient density of what you're eating because now you're actually going to be able to absorb better. The other reason for starting where I do is because there's a natural tendency to want to zoom in on the minutiae again of what we eat. But there's certain behaviors around food in our relationship with food that are relevant regardless of the food that's in front of us. So, that, And if we work on those skills first, then we're not, we don't find ourselves confronted with a situation. I don't know what to do. It's not healthy food in front of me. It's like, well, you can still eat mindfully. You can still eat slowly. You can still stop when satisfied. You know, these are different behaviors you can implement. And so I, I kind of take people through, through five stages. The, the fifth and final stage is, is um, what I, I was like, what do I want to call it? Like food awakening or something. I was trying to come up with a cool name for it. Um, but really what it is about is about like mastering your relationship with food. And that comes near the end of the program because each one of these skills that we work on, it's an opportunity to, I call it like a mini stress test. It's not about trying to do it perfectly, but it's about let's try to implement this skill or practice into your life because we know that those who are what we would call a successful long-term weight manager, these are the skills that allow them to lose the weight and keep it off. So let's try to implement this onto your life, see how it fits, see where it goes wrong, and how do we now customize this to suit your circumstances? And we do that with a series of cumulative skills. So I kind of call it a nutrition progression approach. And 
the, the ultimate goal here is to become what I call slim, but I mean, it's SLWM, successful long-term weight manager. And that's just an acknowledgement that like losing the weight is one thing, but unless you have a liposuction that physically removes the fat cells from your body, you are going to ha- have those fat cells. You can empty them and you can shrink them to, to tiny size, but they're going to be with you for the rest of your life. That's, that's your gift. Okay. And so what, what do we need to do? What's the lifestyle we need to craft for you that allows you to not just lose the weight, but keep it off. And then in a nutshell, I like to say we marry the science of metabolism, the psychology of behavior change, and the compassion of human connection. And when you put those three things together, it becomes like almost inevitable. You, you will succeed. Mm-hmm. So interesting. What about movement? How do you feel about the importance of movement in the lifestyle change? Absolutely essential. Now, I, I like to put the caveat in there that movement and exercise is for fitness and nutrition is for fat loss. Now. I say that because exercise itself is not a great like fat loss tool in and of itself because of its ten- tendency to increase appetite and and so on. But there are so many other health benefits. So if we look at the, the top five biomarkers of aging, so if we didn't know your your biological or your chronological age, we could make an assessment and determine roughly your biological age based on some of these biomarkers. So we look at um, body fat percentage. Lean body mass, so that's you know how much like non-fat mass are you carrying? Um, basal metabolic rate, uh, bone density, and physical strength. So those because as we age, all those things diminish. So we except for body fat percentage, which tends to go up. So we lose muscle; it's called sarcopenia. Um, we lose strength in along with losing muscle. Our basal basal metabolic rate tends to slow down. Again, partially a byproduct of losing muscle. Um, our bone density goes down, uh, a byproduct of not stressing our skeleton as much. And then our body fat percentage goes up because generally speaking, our calorie consumption doesn't go down to accompany these other changes. And so when we bring, um, so if you're to ask me from a physiological standpoint, what's the best thing we could do for our body? And I would say it would be resistance training because it's the one thing we can do that has a positive impact on all five of those key biomarkers. But that being said, it doesn't mean you have to go to the gym and try to become a bodybuilder. You can if you want. I mean, there's some really inspiring bodybuilders like in their 60s and 70s who took this up. And, you know, it's pretty cool what they've managed to do. And I'm like, go for it. But, you know, I have, for example, resistance bands. They're like giant rubber bands. And I take them, we go for a walk with my son and we hop over to one of these little outdoor parks and I use the resistance band. So I'm getting family time. I'm setting my example for my kid. It's nothing like going to a gym and squatting and deadlifting and powerlifting and things like that. But it doesn't really matter. So we find what works for us. And ultimately, the, the activity that you're going to do continuously is one that you genuinely enjoy. Mm-hmm. That being said, you might have to learn to enjoy it in the beginning. Because we're, we're wired to avoid discomfort. And any sort of increase in, in movement will have an element of discomfort as we're trying to change a routine and a pattern. But as you start to reap the benefits, more energy, more mental clarity, better cognitive function... You're, you're going to sleep better. You're going to have lower stress. Like exercise is, is a really interesting one because it's a type of stressor, but it can over, it can lower your stress overall. So there's so many spillover effects that then you start to want to do more of it. And I encourage people to set what I call CMGs or can't miss goals. So what that means is if you said, okay, I'm going to take up running. Cool. I'm going to run five kilometers every day. You're going to, especially in the beginning, you probably won't. Get, maybe get to five kilometers, but the likelihood that you're going to complete that every single day is pretty much 0% because it's too big of a leap. But if you were to say, I want to walk 3,000 steps every day, 
And some people would say, well, that's not 10,000 steps. That's a waste of time. I'm like, no, what we want to do is we want to pattern a behavior. We pattern a behavior by picking something that's highly repeatable. So even on your worst day, you can accomplish that behavior. And now you build what's called a winning streak or you, and you don't break the chain. And this is the trick that comes from Jerry Seinfeld. He was like, write a joke every day, put a big red X on a calendar, on a wall calendar, and don't break the chain. And so I was like, well, why don't we do that in the movement? Because ultimately what keeps us going is if this becomes a habitual behavior pattern and we create that with sort of continuous repeatability. And so one last example, and that is uh, mine is 5,000 steps a day. Now the average I do is about 8,900 steps a day. So why do I keep it at 5,000? Well, yesterday I did 13,000 steps, but some days I might only do 5,500. I have some hip issues related to a couple motorcycle accidents and sometimes it just <laughs> hip flares up and inhibits my mobility. It's, it'd be impossible for me to get 10,000 steps, but I have, you know, currently like 117 day streak going of hitting 5,000 steps. It's enough that I have to do some kind of deliberate movement every day to hit that goal. Mm-hmm. And very often it becomes about how soon in my day can I hit that goal? And I love keeping the streak going. And so that's, that's quite a big nutshell in saying like movement is an absolutely essential part of your overall journey to health. And especially if you're over 50. Absolutely. And every day I feel like I read an article about the importance of it for brain health. I know at my age, over 50 women, the more, if I asked the question to every woman I met who was over 55, let's say maybe 60, what are you most scared of? Alzheimer's or losing my mind and yeah. the answer. So if we can do something as simple as moving every day in a meaningful way, not like I went from the couch to the refrigerator and back. Yeah. <laughs> and for those who don't wear a tracker, you must wear a tracker because you know your steps every day. Or your I do. I swear to, I've been, ha- I've had one of these for, I don't know, 10 years, whenever they first came out, I was all excited. I was like, Oh, this is going to be cool. And I've had different varieties and I've settled on the one that I like, but it really is what you like. If I look and I've, cause there are days when I'm at my computer a lot. Yeah. Yep. If I look down at three in the afternoon and I'm at 3000 steps. You better know I'm going to do something. I'm either getting on my yep. travel, I'm going outside. I don't care how to do it. I got to do something. Even sometimes I'll just get on my bike if I don't feel like just walking in the heat, but it really just, because I have this habit, as you said, I have built this habit over years that I got to do something every day. It doesn't happen every day. I go visit my sister for the weekend. We may walk the dog for 15 minutes and that's kind of it, you know, we're shopping yeah. and whatever. But those other days make up for the occasional day when they're just yeah. that much movement. Well, I think about like my dad who is 70. I think of his age if he was 69 or 70. Anyways, I say that he started exercising when he was 13 and just never stopped. And, uh, you know, I think he's a lot stronger than the average 70 year old for that very reason, Mm -hmm. because he just kept it going. And yeah, the way that he would train now looks very different to when he was in his twenties, of course, but you don't have the same capacity for recovery. And it's important to respect that. You know, um, I think one of the worst things we can do is, I mean, I'm, I'm only 39 going on 40, but the, the worst thing that we can do is try to try to train like we were in our twenties, like let that go. But yeah. you, you can still, you can still push yourself, but it's going to look a little bit different and you have to factor in recovery more. It, it does matter more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want it, you want to just create whatever your, whatever it feels like you could do on your worst possible day, make that your CMG, your can't miss goal and say, that's my can't miss goal for movement every day. Yeah. And there will be people that, Say, oh, well, I missed the boat. I didn't start working out at 13 or 20 or 30, and now I'm 65. Never too late to add no. 
weight training, anything into your life. One of the coolest things I saw, I think it was in Australia, they took nursing home patients who were in their 90s and got them lifting weights. And they saw benefits. They saw improved cognitive function, improved memory function, improved strength. The body has this remarkable capacity to adapt, even in our 90s. And so I, I bet if they were to study people over 100, they'd probably find the same thing. But I think they didn't have enough people maybe in, in a, over 100 years old in one group to... So it really it really is true. It's, it's, it's never too late. And that's got to be one of the most defeating mindsets that we encounter. Like, I missed my opportunity. Mm. It's like, there's one staring in the face today. Yeah. Literally, like if, if you have functioning limbs, it's staring you in the face today. Yeah. There, there is no, you know, let, let go of the past and, and take advantage, you know, stop staring at the closed door and look at the open one right in front of you today. Mm. Yeah. And you touched on something I just wanted to swing over to quickly. Yeah. And that was about cognitive function. And that's something I worry about. And so one of the things I take lion's mane, uh, mushroom extract, uh, which is known to have some really cool benefits or it, yeah, in, in small studies, it's shown some pretty cool benefits. And so I'd love to see larger scale studies on it, but I, I started taking it now because I'm like, um, things like Alzheimer's and dementia, they, they don't just happen overnight. It, it's, it's a progression that happens over a number of years. And so it can take anywhere up to 20 to 25 years to fully develop. And so to be aware of that, like if you're, especially if you're in your early fifties, it's like, you want to be aware of this. This, this could be developing over the next 10 to 15 or 20 years. You want to start taking, you don't want to wait until the symptoms appear before you start um, focusing on brain health. And so, yeah, sleep. Sleep is huge for that. Um, one of the cool things that happens when we sleep is our brain will shrink in volume by up to 25%. And it, it will shrink in our sleep. <laughs> it will shrink. So it will oscillate essentially. A very slow oscillation. So shrink and regrow and shrink and regrow. And it's, it's actually largely movement of fluid in and out. And again, a bit of a simplification, but kind of what's happening here is as the brain sort of shrinks in volume, cere cerebral spinal fluid is drawn up into the brain. And then as it expands again in volume, it's kind of pushed back out. It's like a little bit of a pump effect. And there's a little bit of like washing the brain. And again, this is, this is like a super simplification of what's actually happening, but it's kind of like washing the brain essentially. Well, it takes roughly 90 minutes to do like one of these cycles. I mean, you need four to five of those a night. And that's why, you know, and that's, you know, seven to eight and a half hours kind of thing. And so if we want to keep our brains healthy, sleep is super, super important for that. It is. And I have to go, now we're going to go back to the importance of how long things take to develop when we're speaking about lifestyle change. Yeah. Diabetes, well, diabetes has been going on. If, if you get a diagnosis of pre-diabetes, you are already in a diabetic state. Your heart has been yes. swimming in a sugar bath or rust bath, however you want to look at it, like the things, but we can't feel those changes. Most people can't. Some people will yeah. say, God, I don't feel like myself. And, you know, maybe they'll go get a test and hopefully they'll get, um, you know, a proper diagnosis and the opportunity to understand lifestyle change as well as, or in lieu of medication. But anything that shows up as a disease, and there are actual studies that show that as each decade progresses, if you are, if you're going to get something, you're more likely to get this at 70, this at 80, over 80, right? Things, bad things happen, which means that all the things we can do now, even if we didn't do well for the first 50 or 60 years, we didn't have great habits. We didn't eat all that well, put them in now and help the body regain its flexibility and immunity and strength so yeah. that when something does happen, if it does, you'll be more resilient. 
Well, I love that phrase, like bathing in a rust bath. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very cool visual, though, because, I mean, you're talking about oxidation here, I imagine. Yes. Um, but that's, that's, that's a visual that really sticks out. And uh, one of, like I do practice intermittent fasting. And so generally speaking, I like having, it's 1230 my time today, and, and I won't eat until after this interview. Now, I'll say with intermittent fasting, it's not magic, but... Uh, and if you have a disordered relationship with food, it can be problematic because I used to, I had to stop practicing intermittent fasting because I would start trading fasting for eating junk mm. and that's not healthy either. And there are elements of sometimes you, you ignore a hunger signal and sometimes that's not healthy for people either. So I put those caveats in there, but for me, intermittent fasting is super convenient. I, and all I do is really skip breakfast and just get around to eating lunch around one because I do calls like this um, through my midday. Well, fasting is a, is a really, really cool way to potentially restore a degree of insulin sensitivity and make your body be able to handle something like glucose a little bit better. And it's not meant to be a cure for anything, but when you consider the, the eating patterns that we find ourselves in very often, like eating every two to three hours, using a language like, I'm starving, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> right. We, we never really give our body an opportunity to switch back and forth between sometimes we're going to burn some fat, sometimes we're going to burn some carbohydrates and so on. So by creating gaps between the, the, the number of times we feed ourselves in a day, we will improve our insulin sensitivity, we will improve our glucose management, we'll reduce some of the effects of maybe pre-diabetes. Then you factor in something like resistance training, like lifting weights or resistance bands or so on. That also has a positive effect on insulin and glucose management. So it means that we, there, there's a the scientific term is nutrient partitioning, but without diving into the weeds, it just means that we, again, we manage our blood sugar better because we, we've, we've exercised, for example. And so some people if, may find something like intermittent fasting, while it's not a magic pill, it gives your body a break from dealing with, with sugar. And it gives your body a chance to move into, like we all fast for a period of time through the night when we're sleeping. That's why our first meal is called break fast breakfast. But it might be a simple way to, you know, if somebody doesn't want to count calories, for example, there's value to counting calories, but not everyone wants to do that. And I totally get it. This can be an easy way to implement something that can really help with something like, like blood sugar management. Yeah. Now, of course, do this with your doctor's advice, though. Exactly, exactly. Because it is, you know, although the people that are on the bandwagon of fasting, and I am one, I mean, I, I've read enough, I think, that I believe that it's good for most people. I don't yeah. agree that it's right for every people. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And that's why I want to put the caveat in there. I used to have a really disordered relationship with food. And in hindsight, looking back, it wasn't a healthy practice for me because I was basically, oh, I haven't eaten. It's four o'clock today. Now I can eat whatever I want because I'm starving. Yeah. And I've and, heard people tell me that, oh, you can just eat whatever you want in that four hour window or six hour window. I'm thinking that doesn't make much sense. <laughs> yeah. That kind of defeats the purpose. Right. And so I, you know, I remind myself to, to eat like I would normally eat. And so typically I'll eat um, two meals um, and sometimes there'll be a small snack in there if I have a particularly um, intense workout coming up or something, you know, a little bit of extra fuel for it. But generally speaking, I just kind of eat two meals and I'm quite content with that. It just means it allows me to maintain my weight with relative ease, I would say. Mm -hmm. So are you on a eight hour window, 16 fasting and eight eating or? It's uh, sometimes as much as 18, six. Um, right. the, the downside to something like 18, six is sometimes I might still feel like I can still feel my previous meal in my stomach because I eat pretty nutrient dense meals mostly. I'm not, I don't eat like a monk. I'm not, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I don't want to pretend to be some, you know, but for the most part, my meals are include protein, non-starchy vegetables, which provide quite a bit of bulk and they slow and they, you know, they take time to digest. And so the other downside sometimes is I might end up eating when I'm not really truly hungry. 
Mm. And so I would say something like 16, eight is probably better or like fasting for 24 hours once a week um, can be a good one too. One of the interesting things about fasting is it, it helps us to start to distinguish between like above the neck hunger and below the neck hunger. So there's the psychological hunger and the physical hunger. And so for me, it, it, I think it did help in that regard to kind of break free from my, my addiction to food, which is now actually, it is a recognized thing. And I, I use the word, I've always been careful about using the word food addiction because I don't want to diminish the impact of like narcotic addiction or alcohol addiction. Um, and I don't think food addiction is quite, uh, well, it's pretty destructive to our health actually, but learning to distinguish between um, physical hunger and changing the alarmist language. I'm not starving. You have to go at least 72 hours without any calorie intake before the starvation response begins to occur. And the moment you eat calories, it shuts off. But we can, it's tempting to use this alarmist language to justify, I'm starving, so I'm going to eat two Snickers bars. Well, you know, and so, so all of this to say, fasting can be a really powerful, a really useful tool, but it does need to be used with thoughtfulness and awareness. And definitely if you have a medical condition, always, always check with your doctor. Yes, and I feel like we have now done a 180 back <laughs> sort of where we started, which was to say that if anybody listening is looking for a coach or support or, you know, I would say, actually, my somebody I know really closely is going to talk to Don tomorrow, but <laughs> I would say find somebody who mirrors what you need. When yeah. John went to that guy who finally asked him that he, he expected, he needed, he thought, what he was running from all his life, which was, you know, push me, make me wrong, do that. But what he needed really was somebody to mirror the man that he was, the compassionate guy who had feelings about what was going on and wanted to be on the list, right? Yeah. I love how you've framed that because the, the world of coaching, it's like, I'm not a coach for everybody. I'm not. I'm not. And I don't, I don't try to be, um, you know, if somebody wants to get into athletic competition or obstacle course racing or into, you know, competition prep or things like that. Yes, I have the knowledge to help you with it, but that's really not my area of expertise. And so like, for example, Lifestyle 180, I offer people a 14 day free trial because they might have a conversation with me and go, wow, like you really opened my mind. And I'm like, awesome. That's great. Now let's work together for 14 days and let's, let's, let's see when the rubber meets the road, what's actually like for you before any, any money changes hands and decide is this a good fit you know and, and it's, it's been really it saves me a lot of headache and it saves them a lot of headache really yeah i mean that's really what it boiled down to because the thing is we have like four phases of change right when we, when we try to implement change the first one is the excitement phase and that's the surge in dopamine when we start picturing how we're going to feel and how we're going to look when we achieve our results and our brain gives a surge in dopamine that feel good neurotransmitter well that's a biological response that helps us overcome our fear of change not long into it, it can be anywhere from one to six weeks, we hit a wall. And I call it the frustration phase. And that's where we're now, our, our old habits and behaviors are running into conflict with the new lifestyle we're trying to create. And your brain will tell you it is easier to quit. And it, it's not lying. <laughs> it just means it's easier right now to quit. Your life will be harder later if you quit. But in this very moment, it will be easier to quit because it removes the stress of trying to create change. Now, frustration for your brain is a lot like exercise for your muscles. It says, I need something I don't presently have. And it, it triggers your brain to create new connections and grow and develop. So if you're willing to be uncomfortable in that frustration phase, you move into the next one, which I call the acceptance phase. And that is where we start to say, okay, I can do this. I know how to do this now. Where we get tripped up here, because most people quit in the frustration phase. This is uncomfortable. I don't like this. I'm out. 
the acceptance phase, we go, okay, I've got this figured out. I don't have to do this anymore. And we often pull the shoot. The fourth phase is kind of what I call the automatic phase. And that's where we've, we've done something for long enough that it now becomes our default behavior. And so if we're willing to, and, and that's why Life's on 180 is 180 days. It used to be a program called 80 Days to Awesome. And there was two, what would happen is we'd get to the 80 days and it's like people were just really starting to get momentum. And, and then it's like, okay, now what? And so ultimately I expanded into 100 and actually have a lifestyle 180 part two. I have some clients that are going on two years with me. They went back and did part one and part two again, because it's very much like reading a good book or seeing a movie again for a second time. You start to uncover things you didn't see before. You know, I have one client, for example, and she said she was high for like the first three months in lifestyle 180. So one of her coping mechanisms was smoking weed. And of course that created cravings and so on. So really the first time she was going through it, her brain wasn't fully clear. The second time going through it, you know, after a year, doing part one and part two, now she's in a much clearer state of mind. She's able to implement it at a level of depth she wasn't before. And this isn't to knock smoking weed if somebody wants to do it, but it does alter your brain. It does alter your ability to focus and so on. And so, yeah, there's something to be said for exploring something at a, at a deeper level as well. Mm-hmm. Tell people where they can find you. Where, what's your website address? Freedomnutritioncoach.com. So that will be all one word page with john's episode as usual uh thank you so much you have such a wealth of knowledge really fascinating how you know the scientific background and the emotional side psychological side really really helpful and very very important for my listening audience to hear so thank you so much john yeah thank you very much for having me as well i really appreciate it yeah people i'll be back next week i hope you have an awesome week till then see you soon everybody i have a favor to ask if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you listen to please leave a review on your favorite site for listening to podcasts you can also leave a comment on my website where you'll find the podcast at the podcast tab or under any of the guest podcast episode pages thanks it means a lot to me and i appreciate you be well till next time